Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. If you discover or suspect you have parasites, you might want to keep both options on the table, especially if you're like, no, only natural stuff. But like a blasto infection, from my understanding, can be really hard to clear the longer you've had it. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Today on The Less Stress Life, we have return guest, my friend Jen Fugo, who's a clinical nutritionist empowering adults who've been failed by conventional medicine to be chronic skin and unending gut challenges. She has experience working with conditions like eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, dandruff, hives, with clientele ranging from regular folks to celebrities and professional athletes. She has founded her own line of skincare and supplements available at quellshop.com specifically for people struggling with these chronic skin issues. She holds a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport and is a licensed dietitian, nutritionist, and certified nutrition specialist. Her work has been featured on Dr. Oz Reuters, Yahoo, CNN, and many other podcasts and summits. She's a faculty member of the Learn Skin Platform and an Amazon bestselling author and host of the Healthy Skin show. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah. This brought me back this intro to kind of before we knew each other. I remember coming across you online and thinking, hey, we're kind of like soul sisters practitioner wise. Like people don't work on skin. Anyway, the rest is history. That was years ago, I think. (laughs) Really was years ago. It was many podcast episodes ago is what it was and many conversations ago. So Jen and I talk quite a bit. And as a result of one of our recent conversations on Voxer, which is a walkie-talkie app, which is where we just have ongoing conversations with people whenever you get around to it, we said, hey, we should probably talk about the research-related to parasitical infections and skin conditions because we need to normalize that this is a real thing. So here we are. Here we are. We're getting into it. We're going to talk about parasitical infections. So I'm going to open up and actually let you talk about anything you want to say about why you started really paying attention to this in practice and how you feel. This is going to just kind of a dialogue between us saying how we see it in practice, normalizing some stuff and going over some research. So 
if the conversation piece is parasitic infections and skin rashes, what is like your gut reaction to talk about when given the floor on that, Jen? Well, I would say that there are more parasitic infections happening that either cause and or exacerbate skin issues and other underlying like dysbiosis problems than we realize. I don't think a hundred percent of every person who has eczema or any type of skin issue or even other health issues always has parasites. And it pains me to see that rhetoric going around the internet and Instagram because parasitic cleansing has become extremely trendy. But it is something that I think, at least in the United States, I agree with you. I think it needs to be normalized. And the reason that it's very troubling is that when it comes up on stool tests, I've had the experience where sometimes given the severity of symptoms that a client is experiencing, I'll say, look, you know, maybe you should go back to the doctor and ask initially for some sort of medication treatment because it might help at least just like knock the symptoms down and bring you a little bit of relief while we work on other things. And it is very common for the doctor to say, well, do you have any like diarrhea or, you know, intestinal issues that we can point toward? And of course, most of the time they don't. And the doctor will say, I don't believe that this is accurate or that they don't think these parasites should be treated and they refuse to treat them. And they don't see any connection. They're like, I don't see what the connection would be between, say, blasto and dyshidrotic eczema or anything or something like that. So there's this real pushback and this idea that because we're in the United States, that there are no parasitic infections that happen. And that two, you can have, I think this is another important point that I'm sure, you know, I'd be interested to get your take on is that you do not have to have GI symptoms in order to have parasitic be basically infected with some sort of parasite. And that is increasingly more common in my practice. I think we have to stop looking for classical symptoms and say, you know what, what's going on with this person? And if it shows up on a test, maybe this is just how it manifests in this person. But that's my two cents. Well, we can back up and say that I always think it's easier. I would rather have someone who has GI issues. Oh, yes. Because then you don't have to tell someone they have a problem that they don't think they have because not everyone has GI or feels that they have GI symptoms when they have gut imbalances of all types. So maybe let's set the stage a little bit with types of parasites. And I don't, I tiptoe around this topic because as an integrative professional, we work with intelligent people. So like, it's probably an even divide. It's, oh, I'm telling you something that's new. That's like kind of crazy. Or, Hey, I've kind of heard about this. I don't think it's really crazy. And I feel really refreshed that you're telling me about it. But integrative is sort of like not super duper alternative and not super duper conventional. It's kind of a marriage between, I can speak to both sides of that. And so I'll tiptoe around the conversation of parasites anyway, and I will use the official protozoa term. So protozoa, there's a few types of parasites. So there's helminths, which are multicellular organisms or worms. And I'd like to give you a very, actually, I'm just going to do it now. If you pull out your phone and you Google CDC prevalence pinworms, the page pops right up. I use this all the time with clients to just kind of be like, this isn't my idea. 
guys. <laughs> like this is literally right here and it needs to be a little bit normalized. I'm going to pull it up. So the official name for pinworm is enterobiasis and I might not even be calling it the right, I might not even be pronouncing that, but it's basically the size of like a staple thin white and you might see it kind of moving around in stool, but who is looking at their stool? Duct? Like you'd almost have to be digging around in it, which people do in a stool sample. So just mentioning that. So you could Google prevalence or epidemiology, which basically means prevalence. I'm going to read you directly from the CDC website. The people most likely to be infected with pinworm are children under 18, people who take care of infected children, and people who are institutionalized. Now, to be clear, that means anyone in a hospital, a nursing home, or someone that maybe works in a school, which is an institution with children or a daycare. Because those are institutions as well where you'd have cross-contamination. In these groups, the prevalence can reach 50%. Okay, so yeah, okay, so if one out of every two people that work with kids or have kids could have pinworms, why the freak aren't we talking about it? I get a little like angry. (laughs) I'm not angry. I'm just like, hey, I really hate to be the bearer of bad news right now, but if your butt itches, you can just buy pinworm. And I'm again, like, we set this up as not everyone has issues, but guess what? It's more common than you think. And that's the whole conversation today is that this is more common than we think. And it's on the freaking CDC website that this is a 50%. This isn't the page that changes all the time. I've been referencing this for years with clients. So what happens is we have scratching. So if something itches, you scratch it. Or if you're around other kids and people share, discuss, you know, we share beverages too much and things a little bit too much, which is an issue. So if you scratch, you're getting microscopic eggs under nails that you don't know about. And then you put them in your mouth. So what I've seen as kids or people that chew their fingernails have such a greater issue with this because they're basically, it's like my hands are in things and now they're in my mouth. I don't freaking care if you wash your hands after you use the bathroom. Like we're not that effective with washing our hands. If you've ever done those fun experiments with the glow light and washing the stuff off. So once you have taken them in, it goes on to say that it can take a couple of months for it to mature. So you've got an egg first and then you've got an adult. Again, that would be like one thing you may not even really see symptoms. You might just have like an occasional, like once or twice a month itchy butt because these things have life cycles. So if symptoms can be cyclical or a rash is cyclical, let's say, then I always want to consider the prevalence of an organism that has a life cycle overall with cyclical symptoms. So I just had to throw that out there. You can feel free to interject. What I'm on, big picture here, as I'm just talking about types of parasites. So we've got multicellular or helmets or worms. And the test that I think you and I use the most doesn't even have them on it. And actually, to be honest, I almost never see multicellular parasites or worms on the stool I test I use. I don't either. I've never seen them on there. Okay. I've seen them a couple times, once with a nurse, once with a dietitian. And I have feelings about sushi. When you look at stool tests all day, you're kind of like, you know what? Not real sure how I feel about raw fish anymore. Just maybe not the best. Like I have a conversation with someone when I see it on the food journal. I'm like, hey, was this raw fish? And they're like, yeah, it was. And I was like, yeah. So if we're actually treating whatever, not that we treat, but like if we're actually addressing something in your gut, and we're trying to get rid of it. And we're ingesting a raw food. Do you think that that is for or against? And they kind of laugh and they're like, I get the point. <laughs> so just bringing it up, become a little less. And again, I'm a land, I'm in a landlocked state, but I'm kind of, there is some stuff that circulates out there, like where people that work at labs take home sushi. And then t- I'd actually love to see this in a paper. It would make me very thrilled. And maybe I just need to go looking for it, but they'll take different sushi. They pick up at different places and go home and test it. And it's not what it says it is at all. 
which is so comforting. So anyway, multicellular organisms. And I will share with you that I have a mentor, a naturopathic mentor, and she actually works for some lab companies as a consultant. And she said, yeah, we haven't seen like a lot of practitioners haven't seen any multicellular organisms, even on our functional stool testing, which by the way, is FDA approved. And we can talk about the gamut of, of looking at this because what's a little bit tricky is like, I wish we had some better testing. And I feel that way about a lot of things. I don't have a feeling about this yet. I'm experimenting with specialized parasite testing. There's a couple companies from Arizona and they look at them manually. One's an older guy who looks at it and then another one's a bigger company. So I'm testing those right now to see what I can learn because this is an annoying problem and we'd like to be able to validate issues and just very commonly conventionally with some other organisms, it seems like it's hard to pick up things. So I'll just briefly finish mentioning the types of parasites. We have helmets or multicellular organisms, protozoa, which I do see some of. Now on the name of, on the topic of pinworms, which is super common, you can buy stuff over the counter for it. It says use it once. I think using it twice is a good idea around life set because you're like getting an adult and then you want to get an egg later. So we've got multicellulars and then protozoa, and there is some protozoa that live inside of pinworms. And so sometimes I'll see that looking really high on a test and I'll mention to the parent, like I had a kid where I saw that like last week and I said, you know, this is really high and this lives inside of this organism. So it makes sense for you to consider, you know, maybe prophylactically going ahead and treating. And again, I'm going a little bit on symptoms and a little bit of what you see on testing and kind of like putting together some pieces or a puzzle. So there's single celled, which is protozoa. And then I forget what they call them, but ecto or a parasites on the outside. So like essentially lice and mites and things like that are technically parasites as well, but we're mostly talking about internal and mostly you're going to see GI symptoms possibly again, easier if you have protozoa and worms, but it may not be very significant or it may be kind of flying under the radar or maybe causing symptoms like skin issues, which is so delightful. But there's actually a fair amount of, there's a bit of literature out there that's like, hey, hives and all these things are kind of related to parasite. I don't know how you got down this rabbit hole, but I know you have some, and I have some too, depending on what you've got kind of pulled up in front of you. But let's talk about eosinophils. First of all, will you tell us about what eosinophils are, how you look at them, how they're important in skin issues, and then their relationship with elevated eosinophils and parasitical infections? Well, I look at eosinophils as a marker for some sort of allergic type thing is going on. So eosinophils are a white blood cell and you'll see them on a CBC panel. Usually when they're shortened, it'll just say EOS. So I will see elevated eosinophils often in clients who have like really bad asthma where they'll have really bad allergies, really bad skin issues, and they're super itchy, really, really, really uncomfortable. And if their doctor is generous enough to also run a total IgE, that can also be helpful. And so as a quick example of how I got it and why I got it, even got interested in this. So recently, I had a client who had a very high IgE. So total IgE. IgE is if you think of your immune system, it's sort of like that emergency. That's how it was described to me years ago. It's like the emergency part of your immune system. Like you could potentially go into anaphylaxis with IgE reactions because we mix up food sensitivities and the IgGs with the IgE and call things names that they are not, you know, food sensitivities, not an allergy. And so it asked her because she didn't have any clear symptoms aside from what she had come to me with. Like she had an allergy to tree nuts, which she had known about for like 10 years, maybe more, and hadn't had any tree nuts for like 
basically ever. She knew about it and she avoided them like the plague because it was a pretty serious allergy. So why was her total IgE high? And I believe usually when I see a total IgE, that's high, usually the eosinophils will be elevated as well. And so when we did the GI map, it came back with high blasto. So blastocystis hominis. And so, of course, her doctor was not familiar with the GI map, wanted to rerun it through a local stool lab, and it came back with blasto. And no one had been looking this whole time. And I think that's one of the things that it's not to say that I know better or you know better, because obviously we have a scope of practice. But I like to think outside of the box and ask the question, well, if this is elevated, then why is it elevated? And if you're avoiding the allergy that you're supposedly like super allergic to, why would your IgE level still be so high? Something else must be there causing this issue or something's been missed from an allergic perspective. And in this case, it was blasto. And so there's a lot of interesting research. Most of it seems to be done outside of the U.S., unfortunately, connecting a lot of these like allergic skin issues or what they describe as allergic. I'm putting that in air quotes. So like chronic hives, eczema and whatnot, anything that's itchy with parasitic infections. But the research is really fascinating. So like one study that I found that I was telling you about was from the Journal of Parasitology from 2003. And it was called the prevalence of intestinal parasites among individuals with allergic skin disease. And so they looked at 218 subjects who all had some sort of quote unquote allergic skin disease, such as chronic hives, eczema, and and also just itchiness that they couldn't pinpoint or blame on anything. And so 22% of those subjects were positive for parasitic infections. And what I found even almost more interesting was that of the 22%, so it was something like I think 49 people from my recollection, only 37% of those, that smaller, much smaller group had intestinal symptoms. And so this backed up that sort of clinical experience that I've had that not everyone who has these parasitic infections has, unfortunately, gut problems that are really overt and that your doctor would immediately assume, like, let's test for parasites, we need to look. So that's been one of my like big things is starting to connect the dots between looking at like, especially the serum IgE, and then suspecting parasites. I want to review the stats again from that. So there was approximately 50 participants. And what was the percentage that had parasitic infections? And then one third of them had GI stuff, yes, right? So 218 subjects total. Okay. And then 22% were positive. And then of that percentage, only 37% had GI issues. And they did a three-day stool sample. I think we were talking about that offline, right? So, And this is not in the US, as you said. No, it looks like they did this. At least it looks like it was done someplace else. All of the authors have names that look like it was probably either done in Italy or someplace else. Uh, So it was 48 subjects that were positive for protozoans and helmets, and then 18 of whom had intestinal symptoms. Okay. So this is a small sampling. It's not like a huge, huge study, but it is, I think it is interesting. Right, for sure. Since the question was, we started with eosinophils. So we have some testing challenges. You've mentioned it already, but we can talk about kind of what we've looked at in practice. But then, you know, things may or may not be positive if you go to infectious disease and you get testing. And we're not experts on that, unfortunately, but it may or may not be. And, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, if you're doing a stool sample, it's a snapshot in time. And there is a onion layer in there sometimes, you know, things hide between the villi, they hang out in different places. For example, 
I'll kind of cite another article in a little while, but it talks about, and I know we have like some things we want to talk about with hookworm or ascaris, I think is the other word they use for it. But they're like, uh, sometimes you'll see it eliminated or it'll be coughed up. And I'm like, oh, gross. <laughs> anyway, which I do have like some other, like, I know we're, we're, we're normalizing the conversation, but also, oh, I feel bad. I feel bad about hearing this. So what should someone ask their doctor for if they want to look at, because I think looking at eosinophils is a nice marker. It's like an alarm marker, as you said, right? Where that is something that you could get checked. So what should someone ask their doctor for or have checked or get on their own, maybe? Yeah, you you could just get simply a complete blood cell count or a CBC panel, and it's usually covered by most insurance companies. So it's a really great first step. And when you see that elevated, that's a red flag right there. Something is going on that's driving some sort of histamine-ish type response that you do want to look deeper into. And then maybe if the doctor sees that and you do say have a history of asthma or other allergic issues, you could ask them to run a total serum IgE. And again, this these are general vague markers. They're not going to specifically point you to anything. That's sort of where this trouble is. So your doctor has to want to dig. And I'm happy to share these two resources. But like the one study I looked at, it was it's from 2004. It is from Iran. But they looked at 1,200 subjects. They tested them all for parasitic infections via three-day stool collection. And they also looked at total IgE values. I'm going to quote directly from the article. They said, quote, parasitic infections can cause a 10 to 100 fold elevation in total serum IgE. These infections not only stimulate the production of specific anti-parasitic IgE, but also non-specifically induce polyclonal IgE synthesis. And so again, that goes back to my client where she had the nut allergy, but had been avoiding nuts for like a decade. Why was her total IgE so high? And it turned out it was parasites. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Love it. I have a similar article. So one, send the article over. You just quoted in the chat and I'll put it in our show notes because I'm kind of compiling in order to make it easier for the editor to put these because I want the listeners to have access always to the things we're citing because that's kind of the whole purpose of why we're doing it in this fashion because I want you to know, hey, there's evidence for it. So whether you have to kind of take matters into your own hands or ask someone for help in testing, there's some validity here. So this article is from 2001. It's called Skin Manifestations in Parasite Infection, PMID 1256167. Again, I'll just be in the show notes. And this does definitely piggyback on what you just said. Intestinal parasites stimulate IgE synthesis by their proteinases or peptidases or basically their proteins. Because of their ability to induce IgE production and mast cell degranulation, which I want to talk about in a moment, it's possible that some parasites induce allergic manifestations. Some parasites may be more allergenic than others due to their allergenicity. Blah, blah, blah. Genetic predisposition, nutritional status, and psychosocial variables of host and the time and degree of allergen exposure may also play an important role. It's a good point, right? Because like your constitution or your body's health in the first place means it may be worse for you or better. And I will talk about a story from this mast cell book that I've been reading, which I think could be useful. All right. So in this one, they just wanted to see how often parasites are frequently related to skin issues or like what the background is. So they have 55 patients, again, not huge. 
that were infested with digestive parasites. They were checked for like different allergens. All of them, a sample size is small, but all of them had rasher hives essentially due to their intestinal parasites because their ration hives resolved after antiparasitic treatment. Like 73% of them had essentially urticaria or chronic hives and 40 of them had that and 15 of them had like chronic rash, which really similar. Patients who were infected with a scarus or hookworm had more severe symptoms. So a bigger, nastier pathogen, essentially, or parasite had a worse symptoms. And more than two-thirds of them were infested with hookworms, essentially. And then one-third were infested with Giardia. So right now it's summer and Giardia is really commonly picked up in like streams and creeks and all these things. So I'm seeing it a lot in stool testing actually. And it likes to hide in, up the gall duct or gall, it likes to go up this duct and kind of plug it. So sometimes you'll see issues with like fat digestion. I'll always wonder about it. So you always want to support liver gallbladder when you're addressing Giardia because if you're not, then are you sure you're going to get it? And that's just sort of one of those like unfortunate realities of if my immune system, especially is suppressed or, I mean, I think anyone is open to picking up something, but some of us are going to have more of a symptom than others. So that's it, I guess, basically. Long story short, all of these 50 people had a parasite. Their skin issues resolved after they did antiparasitic treatment. Two-thirds had hookworm and one-third had giardia. Now, what we're seeing in practice is we don't really get to see those worms. However, you have some resources around hookworm, specifically US-based. You had an article, I believe, about Arkansas or something. And so like, tell us about the hookworm capital of the US and why it's that way and talk to us about hookworms. Well, so I don't know why I stumble across all these articles. And, and I also wonder if people should actually like see the video of us talking because we both are making faces because <laughs> it's just such an unappetizing topic. But there was an article that was published. This is September 12th, 2017 in NPR. It's called The U.S. Thought It Was Rid of Hookworm. Wrong. And so they're looking at the data that basically is showing that there's an issue in Alabama with hookworms being present. And because there's a lack of appropriate sewage systems, what most people don't know, but I knew because my husband actually got a hookworm infection when we were in Belize is that one of the most common ways you can get an infection is actually through your feet. So they can like latch onto the bottom of the feet and kind of drill in as it's very unsettling. Anyway, so this was from 2017 and it's really alarming and it has to do a lot of times being blamed with like poor sanitation, which we assume are in quote unquote developing countries, but is happening here in the United States. So when people say, oh, well, there's no parasitic infections, I'm like, that's not true. It happens. We're just not looking for them. And then there was some another article I came across and this was like really recent the article is dated June 17th, 2021, and it is from the big Canadian news outlet that says, Alberta now a hotspot for tapeworm that can cause fatal tumors in humans. Study cautions. So basically what happens is this tapeworm, they would usually see, I think, somewhere in like Asia, like Southeast Asia or something. And it started to show up. And actually, I think this particular strain is, oh, it looks like it's from Europe. It's actually a European strain. And so one article that I read, it was not this one specifically, was that basically people would end up what they thought was liver cancer. And by the time they had liver surgery done, because they had these tumors in their liver, it was basically too late where they discovered that it wasn't actually cancer, but it was the result of this particular parasite. And these people 
die, unfortunately. And so it's so alarming that they're trying to actually make people more aware of this. And also, this is an aside, but they are seeing more like an increase in really serious, like pathogenic fungal infections as well in different parts. Like I've seen that in the US, especially with like the COVID stuff, they were starting to see that be a problem. And they're starting to see that in other parts of the world as well. So we do have to be aware, you know, you and I've talked about fungal issues, like there can be pros to things like they're using helmet therapy now to help to basically modulate people's immune systems to help when they have severe pollen allergies. So there can be pros to it, but there can also be cons. And I think when we're not looking, when we're just assuming that no one has these issues at all, that's where we have a problem because we are unfortunately a society of people that many of us who are chronically ill struggle to get actual answers. And it's a shame where we just ignore certain things because we assume it's not happening here when it actually can. Right. Thanks for mentioning that there is such a thing called Helmuth or worm therapy that's meant for being helpful. Although I don't feel extremely settled by it, but <laughs> we always don't come to me and ask me for information about that because I don't know anything about it. I'm just familiar with it. I have a podcast, Dr. Heather's Wiki. She talked about it. It was, I think, like January of 2021 was the podcast date. Okay. And so she's a super nerd. She is a super nerd. And I was like, what? What? And she, you know, she had a very clear explanation of how they use it and how it can be helpful and how they like do something to the worms so they can't replicate. And after like three years, they die and you poop them out and then you have to like basically take a capsule with them again. So it's just, I don't know if I could like do that. It reminds me of like using leeches for getting, you know, back in the day. And so I can appreciate it. Thanks for whoever figured that out, I guess. Um, Yeah, something. It's something. That's all. It is something. I think too, we should just quickly mention too, for those who have eczema or atopic dermatitis, there is a drug called Dupixin, which I'm always looking at like what the drugs do because so many people are like interested in taking these drugs or they're on them. And so I like to educate myself. And just for those of you who are either interested in using Dupixin to help control your symptoms or you're on it, just realize that if you go to the front page, literally the front page of Dupixin's website, it says on the like, if you scroll down a little bit, it's on the like right hand side that if you have a helmet infection, you're supposed to tell your doctor and you're not supposed to use Dupixin. There's no explanation as to why. And it's also in the TV ads. They literally say it because I've seen the TV ads. And yet every person with the exception of like maybe one or two people, they've said that they've never been asked by their doctor if they have any type of helmet infection. The one person who told me that she was actually asked She's like, how am I supposed to know if I have a helmet infection? And the doctor was like, well, but you don't have one, right? And she's like, no, I don't know. Right. So, unless we look. Did you check? <laughs> Did you check? I don't know. Did you test me for helmets? Maybe you should. Anyway, sorry. Just no, I'm not trying to dog on doctors. I love doctors. No, My uh-uh. dad was an MD. They're very no. important. But like, it's confusing to me that it's literally that big of a deal that it's mm-hmm. on the front page of their website. And yet no one is asking that question and no one's checking. Right. It's hard to remember the checklist. Do Pixin should really come with a checklist? Did you ask your patient if they had worms or did you check for it? Also, I'm just dying to know why they put it on page one. What was the backstory there? I would love to know because it's going to be not a super common, you know, that was like a not in the US thing for sure, just because we pretend like we're exempt from things. And granted, we're a developed country. But we have undeveloped, like the article where you were talking about the hookworm capital of the world, 
you talked about how you could pick it up in feet and you had personal experience. I'd love to hear yes. more about the personal experience that you had with that. But you were talking about picking it up in the feet. I don't remember if you mentioned this in our recording or off the recording. You were talking about people not having you know, maybe essentially like bathroom sanitation yeah. stuff. But you know, and you were talking about how it's like a really impoverished area. I live sandwiched between like two of the most impoverished counties in the US. And so I just mean like we have like undeveloped things happening in our own country next door to us all the time. I know you mentioned picking it up in the soil. And obviously I'm here and present with you, but I'm like, did you mention about the sanitation things and like how it gets in the soil a little bit? So the only thing that I read in that article was that it's because they don't have a sewer system and when they would get huge downpours, it would, whatever the sewage is being held in is overflowing and thus the the contaminated water is getting into the earth. Now, important to know, obviously, you have to be barefoot. So for Mm -hmm. example, my husband and I were walking on a beach I was totally going to interrupt you about this. Don't be walking on the beach barefoot anymore, guys. Oh, gosh. But the beach, I will admit, unfortunately, the beach that we were walking on was kind of dirty. And I guess that should have been a red flag. But we were walking barefoot on the beach. He got hookworms. His foot got really, really itchy. And he couldn't figure out why. And then after a while, I was looking. He's like, is there something on my foot? And I was looking and I could see these like little lines. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Maybe you should go to talk. Were they long lines yes. kind of? Okay. Yes. Yeah, it would look like a it was not like a fold of the skin or like the lines that you have on your hands or your feet. It's not a nope, it looks like something else. It wasn't moving, but it was definitely there and he had to take medication. He did see an infectious disease doctor for it. That's how we knew what it was. But I also had gotten a parasite while walking in a river in Costa Rica barefoot. Yet again, barefoot, because we wanted to go see a waterfall. And even though the water there is generally regarded as pretty clean, still got a parasite. And that actually gave me GI symptoms. When was that? Oh, that was a long time ago, maybe 2007. Okay. And I had... How long did it take you to get symptoms? Mm -hmm. I think it took about a month a month or two, I knew I started to have issues with like explosive diarrhea, but it wasn't all the time. It would come and go. And I first I started to blame food because this was not long after I had gone gluten, dairy and egg free at the bequest of my nutritionist at the time. And that had really improved things. So I got into a normal place. And then we went on this trip to Costa Rica and I'd never had issues before. I always drank bottled water. But like I said, with I just couldn't correlate it to any food. And when I went back and told her, I forget how we determined it. I might have had some testing done or something like that. And then I had to do this whole round of anti-parasitic supplements, which was really hard because I can't swallow pills and whatnot. So it's a good time is what you're saying. Um, When were you diagnosed with celiac disease? Oh, so I was never diagnosed with celiac disease, believe it or not. Oh, I thought Um, you were. No, she had suspected gluten sensitivity and the testing came back as like, off the charts for gluten. I took it out and I was like a completely different person. I have been tested for celiac, but that was like a year ago and it came back negative, but I've been gluten-free for 11 years. Mm -hmm. So I didn't anticipate it to come back, but I remain as such because when I do eat it, I develop skin rashes on my face and GI problems and all sorts of stuff. But that happened kind of later in life. So like, I was wondering if there was any, because this reminds me of a time I had this woman who went on what she called was a sketchy retreat center in South America. And she came home and basically long story short, none of her infectious disease panels would come back with parasites, but she developed secondary celiac disease and she had a family history of celiac disease. She developed secondary celiac disease from quote unquote food poisoning. 
like she had a GI episode or food poisoning episode was what the settlement was at the end. And then she got celiac. I think that's a thing. Yeah, but I've seen case studies like Dr. Jill Carnahan had posted a case study a long time ago that actually like a candida infection in the GI tract had triggered celiac disease in this one patient of hers. <laughs> I mean, there's lots and of that's, different things. That makes sense. And I think this would be relevant to the discussions. There's kind of a totem pole of like, you need to address parasites. And so if you don't, it would make it easier for fungus to proliferate as well, because it's going to like house it. And parasites also house annoying other things like heavy metals and just crap. <laughs> like crap. Yeah. just all kinds I, of crap. I think it's worthwhile to mention, because we didn't, as I'm sitting here thinking that you need to go back and comb through your travel history as well, because there have been so many times when I'm like, okay, tell me when this started. And then I'll go through, I'll be like, tell me where you traveled. And they're like, kidding, right? I'm like, no, I want to know where did you travel? And approximately when was that? Mm -hmm. And there are so many times where somebody was like, oh yeah, my rash started in, I don't know, for example, 2009. And then I'll be like, okay, well, wait, you said, when did you travel to you know, Morocco or Bali or something like that. And it's like around the same time or within six months. And I think the problem that we have is that when people have gotten sick, I have worked with both clients who have gotten sick being in quote unquote developing countries, also not gotten sick in the developing country, but you can pick something up in a small amount and not Mm -hmm. develop a problem. And who's to say it doesn't just hang out there? Like, Mm-hmm. Chilling with all the gut bugs. And then with time, it gets worse and worse and worse. And your right. body's like, yo, I can't deal with this anymore. Sorry. Right. Now you have whatever. Right. I was told I should treat for parasites quite a bit right before we got married. And, you know, I met my husband a couple of years before that. And we were on a trip to South America. And I was definitely brushing my teeth with the water there. So I don't know. It's probably maybe not a great choice, but I was like, look at me. I'm fine. <laughs> Whatever. Stupid college well, we kid. We can't see, see them. Yeah. The yeah. So you think it's fine. You're like, oh, the water looks, it's clear. It's not right. yellow. Right. It's tricky. Okay. I think we did a good job talking about multicellular organisms. There is a challenge to testing. Sometimes it'll pop up. Sometimes it won't. I would look at cyclical symptoms. Mm-hmm. Travel history travel history, protozoa, we can see. And I will say another thing from like a clinical perspective, sometimes you'll do even a functional stool test. And I would say there are certain organisms that hang out together and you may not see it the first time again, because we're looking at a snapshot in time. And I would say protozoa, yes, you may or may not have GI symptoms, but yes, you may not. But there's definitely like, for example, here's another study really quickly. This is chronic spontaneous urticaria and internal parasites at a systemic review. So this is like spontaneous random hives, like just kind of showing up here and there, basically lasting for over six weeks due to known or unknown causes. A lot of case reports suggest that internal parasite infections can cause this, blah, 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 blah. And it basically said, if you were diagnosed with protozoa, it could have been much worse, essentially. The hives were much more significant or worse. And when you're talking about this spontaneous situation, it's cycling. Again, it's a cycling symptom overall. And I'll just throw that article again in the research for the show notes overall. Okay. Anything we kind of missed? I'm looking through my notes for us. The only thing else I would just add is that you have to consider the severity of your symptoms. If Mm -hmm. say you're working with like you and I cannot prescribe medication. So there's Mm -hmm. a time and a place where you might need to go back to your doctor. And I have worked with some clients, like one of my clients had, and they still have, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at her most recent, just like in doing this show, but like her total IGU was over 5,000. So I've had some people whose total IGA is like through the roof, 
through like 15 buildings roofs. Like it's so high and they're so miserable and their skin is driving them nuts and they can't sleep. Like you have to ask yourself because parasite cleanses are so so ubiquitous Mm. online and you can go on websites and there's people like pushing them and saying, no, this is the way, this is the way. The reality is that medication for some people, if it's a right fit for you, and especially if you're really, really suffering, might be a good place to start because it can help at least get you more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then you can be working on other things because I've had some, I've tested out different like kits on the market that are Mm -hmm. commonly talked about online. And I've not had great results in seeing Mm -hmm. the clearance or, or even an improvement in symptoms where in dealing with some other things, has been more helpful. So I think we just have to keep in mind that like, if you discover or suspect you have parasites, you might want to keep both options on the table, especially if you're like, no, only natural stuff. But like a blasto infection, from my understanding, can be really hard to clear the longer you've had it. I've seen a lot of cases of blasto, especially with dyshidroidic eczema. Not every case has it, but a number of them do. And they don't have any GI issues either. So in those instances, the person has gotten much more relief quicker in using medication that their doctor has prescribed. So I think it's worthwhile to leave all your options on the table and not just say, no, I'm not ever going to use medication. If you're the right fit and you're really suffering, it could like at least help you get a little further down the road. What are some examples of medications that your clients have been prescribed? Metronidazole, aka Flagyl, mm-hmm. uh, paramomycin, Alinea, Although I've not seen as much, like a lot of people who've tried Alinea don't seem to get as good of results. I don't know why, Mm -hmm. but then the way it's been prescribed has been like all over the place. Mm -hmm. Most people have had, it seemed like the best luck with the metronidazole, flagyl, or Mm -hmm. paramomycin. Which I have a client who is from South America originally, and she said it's kind of just rite of passage every year that you take a course of flagyl or metronidazole. So that's how they handle it there. And the other thing with that, that you should know is that if you do a course or two, you have to watch your liver enzymes because parasitic medications, just like actually antifungal medications. So if you have a fungal problem on top of this, you really have to watch your liver enzymes because they can skyrocket and then it's a whole other issue. So you've got to really manage liver detox and making sure to support your liver and you can only go as fast as your liver is going to allow because otherwise you can have problems. Yeah. Great point with skin issues in general. That's why they're such a delight overall because they're a way your body's trying to like show off that it's got an issue a little bit. Okay. So a couple of comments. I'm going to reiterate that yes, I have tried some kits on the market that are kind of popular and also had mixed results. And so I would align with that. It doesn't like, you can't just put everyone on the same treatment protocol. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. So that might be how we want to say that. You want to consider your source of inoculation, like travel history, plane and streams, river streams, etc. I mean, it's just as eating sushi, eating undercooked meat, your partner's situation, signs and symptoms and all those things. And like your, your desire to go barefoot and different things like that. And a couple other maybe signs and symptoms. And this was the story I was, so I'll talk about, I'll mention low diversity. Like I have another article here that I may include in the show notes. It just talked about like those with psoriasis having really low microbial diversity. And then a lot of times with other conditions, we'll see a lot of overgrowth of other things. But I would say like overall low diversity can be a red flag and low immune status could be a red flag, even if something doesn't show up as positive, because there's a reason that the immune status is going to be suppressed and that good microbes would be suppressed also. So even that can be like the first sign of a red flag, just poor diversity overall, just throwing that out there. Then lastly, 
alluded that I was going to say this and I didn't. You were talking about the hookworm thing with your husband and that's great. Fortunately, he was diagnosed. Wouldn't it be frustrating if he couldn't have gotten a diagnosis and couldn't have gotten medication? How horrible would that have been, right? Uh But I'm reading this extremely thick book right now by Amber Walker, who I'd love to have on the podcast. And she is a physical therapist that basically had mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS or MCAD kind of, they don't say that they're exactly the same, but basically a syndrome where you're kind of sort of allergic to everything and like life is an emergency. And that usually like kind of happens over time. And I've enjoyed her, the first chapter, which is super long, but it talks through like her life. Like she started with being kind of like an allergic kid. And then she went to Peru and kind of worked abroad for quite a while as a PT. And she tells one story about her foot getting broken open on a beach and her kind of like walking back and rinsing it off and being like, oh, okay, I'm fine. And the next day, a line that wrapped around her ankle. And I like, again, gagged a little bit when she told this part of the story, but she's like, later on, like I had a worm come out of my belly button, like around that area. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Yup. 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 So there are people who are like big parasite people and they'll tell, be like, oh yeah, people pull things out of their nose. I've never seen or heard of that. Like I've not, I don't have personal experience or I have never had a client have that situation. I like hang out in the world of like single celled organisms that don't belong where they are on protozoa and have quite a bit of success with making sure we don't forget to address those things and just trying to normalize that. So any other comments that we should leave people with? You have to get a referral to go to an infectious disease doctor. You can't just go yourself. They can Mm -hmm. turn your case down. It's really hard to get in to see one. And the only way that I ever had a client get diagnosed with a basically a worm infection was through an anal scraping. Oh, fantastic. I didn't even know. But that makes sense Uh, because that's where like pinworms specifically will come out. So if you have a kid, like if you see pinworms on your child and you call and they'll just like prescribe and be like, here, just take this (laughs) because I've known people who've had that experience. But, uh, you know, they basically come out at night and lay eggs around the outside and then go back in. So I would say like anytime there's a ring around the anus, I would be very interested in making sure you address this. And that happens all the time. So we don't want to be weird. We just like don't want someone to live in chronic misery because like something is leaching their iron and their nutrients Mm -hmm. and affecting their sleep and making them grind their teeth or wet the bed or, you know, like these are potentially parasitical symptoms in addition to skin rashes. And they can change it. Like I have a client whose daughter had, she was seven years old, lots of nightmares, constantly waking up at night, really Mm -hmm. bad with school, loads of constipation problems Mm -hmm. as a seven-year-old. And so her mom was like, you know what? I want to do a GI map. And it came back with a parasite. And the pediatrician referred to a gastroenterologist who told her that that's not what he does, which was so confusing to me. He refused to treat it. I need to get a little so confused th- by things like that too. <laughs> so the pediatrician was like, the heck with this. I'm going to treat it. And that little girl is like a different person. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had perioral dermatitis. The perioral dermatitis went away. She sleeps through the night. She's now focused in school. She needs like maybe a teaspoon of aloe juice daily to go to the bathroom. Her mom said her energy levels are so much better and it was mm-hmm. just this one thing. So it can be a really big game changer. But again, it's not something to just guess because it's trendy or you did a quiz online or something like that. I do think it's worthwhile because it can also be you can have it just a parasite. You can also have other issues going on and you can't just assume dealing with the parasite is going to get rid of the other issues. Sure. You bet. That was a great point. Thanks for telling that story. That's, I think I should almost incorporate that into the title because it's a really common kid problem. And I mean, I feel terrible because it's really common and doesn't get addressed. And 
I mean, really what this leads to is like we're over medicating for behavioral issues eventually when it's yeah, like we just, could. They just wanted to give her Miralax. Mm-hmm. That was the solution from the right. GI doctor was even though she had the proof that she had. He's like, oh, I don't right. treat that. I don't treat parasites. Right. So uh, we'll just leave that there for now. I don't really understand. Sometimes I'm just like, okay, whatever. I'll just do what I can to help here because (laughs) I was a lot working out. Okay, Jen, thanks for coming on today and talking about this topic that sometimes some people don't want to touch with the 10 foot pole. And I'm glad we're normalizing it. If you have questions about this or you have follow-up questions and you want us to answer it, go to lessstresslife.com, click on the little side button. There's a little speak pipe app and you can drop your voicemail to that. I'd love to hear from you. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.